This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. Well, I've got something completely new for you tonight. It's called The Big Show, with Tallulah Bankhead as the host. NBC's The Big Show was a big enterprise in every way. The opening program contained such names as Fred Allen, Jimmy Durante, Jose Farrar, Ethel Merman, and Frankie Lame, to name just a few, all presided over by Tallulah Bankhead. Now, the show ran for an hour and a half. It was housed in NBC's Center Theater, which holds 3,000 folks, and had a 44-piece orchestra and 16-voice choir presided over by Meredith Wilson. It cost a lot of money. By starting off at 6 o'clock and extending through 7.30, NBC hoped to lure all the listeners to its network before CBS opened with its big guns, Jack Benny, and to hold them right on through the show. Now, I've found cut-down versions of the show, which thankfully are closer to 30 minutes in length, but it'll still give you the flavor of the show. The guest performers over the next course of uh, the big show's two years represented some of the biggest talents in the entertainment industry, the greatest singers, actors, comedians, and personalities of the era. Now, tonight's show offers up some talents of Jack Carson, a mini-drama featuring James Mason and his wife Pamela, as well as Jimmy Durante. And this show was first broadcast November 28th of 1951. The Big Show. Welcome to The Big Show. Hi, everybody. This is Jimmy Walling, welcoming you to The Big Show. A star-studded extravaganza sent your way with the best wishes of each and every top name on the show. And here is your hostess for the next half hour, the glamorous, unpredictable Tallulah Bankhead. You know, there are weeks when we have the most handsome, divine men on the show. And then again, there's this week. <laughs> but we're always delighted to have with us a young comedian who really knows his job. When you give him a script, he gets the meat out of every line. He's always on the ball. What I'm trying to say is he's a real meatball, Jack Carter. <laughs> Could I answer her if I was clever? If I was clever, I wouldn't be on this show. My, he's a big one, isn't he? How tall are you, Jack? Six feet three in my stocking feet. Oh, what are you without your stockings? Barefoot. <laughs> no, how tall are you really, Jack? Well, now, Tallulah, maybe this will explain it. Lana Turner only comes up to my shoulder. Ginger Rogers can only come up to my chin. How about me, darling? <laughs> 
You can come up to my house. I'd rather die. <laughs> I don't know of a better way. <laughs> Jack, were you always this tall? No, 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 not when I was born. As a matter of fact, I was only a, a medium-sized child. When I was 15 years old, I grew an extra foot. <laughs> well, that must have been pretty rough on your parents, buying three shoes at a time. <laughs> As a matter of fact, my parents were quite wealthy. Why, when I went to college, I didn't even go out for basketball. <laughs> I didn't need the money. <laughs> well, <laughs> now to change the subject, Jack, but you sing, you dance, I'm surprised you've never been in a play on Broadway. You'd be just right for a musical. Musical? Mm-hmm. Not me. I've had plenty of offers. You know, some years ago, a couple of guys came to me about doing a musical. <laughs> Silly idea for a show I ever heard of. The first place away was a cowboy story. It took place down in Texas or Wyoming or Oklahoma, I don't know. They didn't even have a chorus of girls to open up the show with. They wanted me to open the show and come out on the stage by myself with this cowboy outfit and sing something about, uh, uh, oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. Imagine those two guys. No chorus or anything. Isn't that rich? <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> that musical ran seven years. <laughs> seven years? <laughs> oh, what a beautiful morning. But darling, darling, think of it another way. With you in it, it wouldn't have run at all. <laughs> oh, well, thank you for the life. That makes me feel much better. That's it. Now, take it easy. May I borrow your hanky? Well, of course, darling. Here you are. There, now, blow. Thank you, Slova. Goodbye. Ah, oh, now, come back here. Why don't you put yourself together and sing us a medley of some of the hit songs from some of the hit shows you turned down? Ah, oh, now, you're making fun of me. <laughs> but honestly, Slova, how can you tell if a song's going to be a hit or not? Especially when you examine the lyrics they write. Take an old standard song like, well, uh, like uh, A Peg of My Heart. Listen to this. Take my heart I love you Don't let us part I love you I always knew It would be you Since I heard your building laughter It's your Irish heart I'm after Peg of my heart Your glances Make my heart say How's chances Come be my own Come make your home In my heart Well, Jack, that was very pleasant Yeah, I know, I, I sing like a doll, but <laughs> Did you get a load of those lyrics? Listen to this Peg of my heart Come make your home in my heart I, I know there's a housing shortage, but isn't that carrying things a little too far? Well, let's see if it is. Now, I'm Peg, and I've just come to town from Alabama. I, I need a room. And I look in the classified section of the medical journal. I find your advertisement, and I come knocking at your heart. Yes, miss? What can I do for you? Well, I saw your ad in the paper. Is your heart still for rent? What's your name? Peg. Oh, sure, sure. Come on in. 
Well, I, I want to look around first and see if I like it. Uh, how many rooms are there? Four. Left oracle, right oracle, left ventricle, right oracle. Well, it's a kind of a large apartment for me. Well, it's a six-foot, three-story building. Well, all I really need is two oracles and a valve. Well, there's a valve right down the coronary. But no, all I need is the two oracles. I have no use for the uh, ventricles. Well, I need them. If it wasn't for them, the building would fall down. Well, is it uh, centrally located? Uh-huh, right on the main artery. And there's a wonderful view of the East Liver. <laughs> but it, it, it seems rather stuffy in here. Don't you have cross ventriculation? <laughs> oh, it's airy enough. You just follow the rules. No drinking. Uh, I never touch it, sir. <laughs> I don't care if you touch it. Just don't drink it. <laughs> Gives me heartburn. Well, I hope it's quiet in here. Oh, sure, sure. It's a very quiet neighborhood. There's only a couple of kidneys that live back there. They just float around. <laughs> well, is this the only apartment you have? I mean, how about that penthouse up in your head? That's empty, isn't it? <laughs> Yes, but I don't want a tenant like you in my hair. Goodbye. And now, darlings, I want you to meet two tenants who moved into my heart a long time ago. James Mason, the distinguished actor of the British cinema and more recently Hollywood, and his talented wife, Pamela. Seldom does a short story outlive the span of the magazine issue in which it is printed, but occasionally one comes along that has the power and force which make it timeless. We have such a story tonight, so without further ado, Mr. and Mrs. James Mason will bring us the Samuel Blass classic, Revenge. It's done. I killed as any man would have killed. I run as any man would run. Beside me, Elsa stares straight ahead at the highway. Her lips are blue and swollen. Her face battered. Her expression is grave, almost serene, almost dead. How long ago was this morning? How many miles back to the glade where the breakfast she had cooked in the trailer had mingled its rich smells with the even richer smells of autumn? Look out there, dear. Have you ever seen anything so beautiful? Only you. You still think so? I've never thought anything else. Since the first day you entered my literature class eight years ago. Oh, you look so stern, so forbidding, so unapproachable. I thought you'd have a foul temper. I. <laughs> Were you disappointed? No. I'm glad we had that tower puncture last night. That's a strange thing to be glad about. Only because it stranded us out here like this, away from the trailer camps, away from everybody and everything. In two more days we'll be home again, and you'll have your classes, and I'll have the children again. I'm very grateful for these few hours, just the two of us. And I'm very grateful for you, Elsa. There'll be other days like this for us, other years, other vacations. Not if you don't go and get that puncture repaired. Is there a town nearby? A place named Campbellton on the map. I think it should be about uh, 12 miles. Good. By the time you get back, I'll have the dishes done and everything in order. 
You're not going to ride in with me? I'll wait around a messy service station. I have work to do, my good man. And it's such a beautiful spot. But you'll, you'll be here alone. I've been alone before, silly. What could possibly happen to me? What could possibly happen? It seemed that nothing could then. An hour out of the space of a lifetime. An hour to repair a tire. Only an hour. But when I drove back from the town, she wasn't outside the trailer waiting for me, and I knew with a terrible certainty that she'd be there unless something was wrong. Elsa? Elsa, I'm back! Elsa! Elsa! Can't you hear me? Elsa! You hiding in here? Where? Elsa. She was there, huddled on the floor in the corner. She was crying without a sound, the tears mingling with the blood on her bruised and beaten face. She stared at me dully like a beaten animal. And then she started to whimper. He killed me. He killed me. What happened? Good heavens, Elsa, what happened to you? Don't touch me. Don't hurt me. Elsa, it's me. Me, Philip. What happened? Philip. He killed me, Philip. While you were gone, he... He killed me. Who, Elsa? Who did it, Elsa? Who did it? Salesman. Said he was... Salesman. Elsa, get up. Let me carry you to the car. To a doctor. No. No. No, Doctor. He called police, newspapers, the children. Where is the man? Who was he? Salesman. Are you sure? Did he did he carry a sample case? A display? Yes. Case. He was passing on his way to town. He saw the trailer. I told him we didn't need anything. Then he hit me, Philip. He wouldn't stop. Killed me. I washed her face the way I'd wash the face of a child. She stared at me blankly, as though all feeling had stopped, as though the world had stopped for both of us. I changed the trailer tire, and she stood there watching me with those same leaden eyes. When I finished, I took the thick, heavy jack handle and slipped it under the waistband of my trousers. I knew what I was going to do, what I had to do. We'll drive slowly through the town. Do you understand that? Yes. We'll go up and down every street, every street, every alley, every road. You'll see him. Keep watching and you'll see him. He'll hurt me, Philip. He'll never hurt anybody again. Just watch. Watch. Faces passed and merged into a red haze. I wanted to scream like an animal, consumed with hatred for a man I'd never seen. A man I was only going to see once. Endless hours and endless streets went by. And then... That man. There. That man. You sure? That man. 
He carried a sample case, and he moved into the lobby of a cheap hotel. I followed him into the elevator. I saw the room number on the tag of the key in his hand. He looked at me once, and I smiled at him. When he got off, I rode up one more floor and walked down. I found the number of his room. Yeah? May I come in? Sure. You a local merchant? No. I see you're a salesman. That's right. What's your line? I'm an instructor. A father. A husband. Hey. Hey, what's the matter with you, fella? What are you going to do with that thing? I'm going to... Kill you. Kill you. Kill you. Kill you. Elsa knows. But she sits in the car staring straight ahead. The motor hums in a vast silence. Square yellow signs blaze out of the darkness. Danger. Sharp curve ahead. The revenge is behind now. Hours behind. 200 miles behind. A dead face. Blood on a cheap rug. A moment for death. A lifetime from a remembrance. Clocks can't be turned back. Nothing can be stopped or undone. A red sign glares out of the night like anger. Like a flame. Gasoline. Why are we stopping, Philip? Gasoline, dear. Oh, gasoline. The attendant is inside, making change for a customer. The man comes out, stuffing a receipt into his briefcase. That man. What? That man with the briefcase. Elsa. He's the one who did it. He did it. That man. Elsa. My God. What have I done? Oh, my God! further now without introducing a man we have on our show who is indispensable to any show he's on. Am I right? Right! Oh, you can't have the show without the ready. You've got to have the fabulous James. You can hear him high above the saxes and brass. That's the only way to give the brasses some class. That's the way to give him what appears to the mass. You've got to give Jimmy a go. And we are not going to do without Durante any longer, for here he is singing in my strutaway, the one and only Jimmy Durante. I just got back from Washington today. And really, folks, I've got a lot to say. Now, while I was there, 
I met the adjutant general, and what he told me put me in a date. Fine for days and days and days and days and days and days for a week. Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Wait a minute! There's that guy going on business for himself. <laughs> the adjutant general says, "Jimmy, you've been invited to entertain at the White House." He said it'll be a gathering of the intelligentsia, the hoi polloi, the 400, the 500, the 600, the 700, the 800. Everywhere you go, critics. <laughs> then he said, Jimmy, what do you do when you're called upon to entertain? I said, Mr. Adjutant General, what'll I do? I'll tell you. Why, in the midst of festivities, I'll get up, I'll get up, and do my spreadaway. In my cutaway, it's just a hop away, a slide away, and a scram away. And then you skid right down and you go to town with a twist away. Why, when you strut away, this way it's a holiday. You know, I was dancing a strut away with a girl named Suzette when she accidentally backed into a hot radiator. Zip, rep, Suzette! <laughs> It's a dance that's gonna gain great renown. You know, I know a beautiful gal invited me up to her apartment to teach her this dance. I wasn't in the apartment ten minutes when who walks in? Her husband. Kind of perturbed. <laughs> he said, what are you doing here? I said, I'm putting on my white tie. I'm putting on my top hat. I'm putting on my top white tie. To do my strut away. Do my strut away. Say, did you ever have the feeling that you wanted to do? Just strut away. Why the hop away? Just spam away. And then you skid right down and you go to town doing a strut away. Now hop away. Just spam away. Once more. You know, folks, I'm happy to tell you that I just bought a brand new convertible coupe. Boy, what a car and what an invention it's got. You push a button, the top stays where it is. But the bottom falls out. <laughs> so what did I do? I did the crawl away, not the strut away. Did you ever have the feeling that you wanted to do the strut away? The hop away, the spam away, once more. Now, Chalu. Now, Jimmy. Now, I ain't in the mood. Oh, come on, Jimmy, what's the matter? Every time I come on this show, you always got some high-class actor playing those dramatic parts, like that James Mason. What about me? I'm as good as them English actors, to mention a few, Robert Donuts, Charles Lafton, <laughs> Betty Grable. Jimmy, Betty Grable's not English. I know, but sometimes when you mention a product on radio, they send you a sample. <laughs> Well, well, I didn't know that. Uh, um, Fort Knox. <laughs> and he is, too. Oh, I didn't know you were a dramatic actor, Jimmy. Why, I've played in everything Shakespeare ever wrote. Oh, come now, Jimmy, not everything. Unless he's written something lately. <laughs> oh, I'd love to do a scene from Shakespeare with you, Jimmy. How about one of those warm, tender love scenes? Just you and I, darling. Okay. <laughs> Come closer, closer, that's it. Go on, Jimmy. Look at me. Look at me, darling, and then you say, 
Is this a Dagmar which I see before me? <laughs> How's that, Duluth? <laughs> Very good, Jimmy, but I don't seem to recognize the line in Shakespeare. You don't recognize that famous scene from Mack Truck? <laughs> That's the famous silk That's the famous Sequilla. Uh, a... <laughs> I thought this was one show I could go right through without a spit. <laughs> Get me a doctor, I just split my parsable. <laughs> Jimmy, I didn't know that you were so well-versed in the classics. When they wanted somebody to play Cyrano the Bergerac, did they ask me? No. They get some guy named Josephine Ferrer. <laughs> He's a phony. Him and his nose. <laughs> he wears a falsy. Just how you feel, Jimmy, about somebody playing a part that you know you're best suited for. Well, I was talking to Mrs. Mason about the same thing. Chalu, if you and I teamed up and went to England, we'd have them rolling in the British Isles. <laughs> we'd be the greatest stars they ever saw. Who knows? The king might even knight us. Well, well, Sir James Durante. Well, well, Sir Tulula Bankhead. <laughs> What, Jimmy? Let you and I play that scene the Mason just played. That story called Revenge. But oh, we'll need an extra player to play the salesman. Oh, I know. Maybe Jack Carson might oblige. Jack, darling. Yes, Tallulah. Would you care to take a part in the play that we're going to do? The play the part I'll of. I'll do it. Uh... <laughs> well, wait a minute. Let me tell you what the part Doesn't is. Doesn't matter. I'll take it. I'm not turning down anything anymore. Slime will be a hit. <laughs> well, all right now, Jimmy. We're all set for revenge. We're gonna do the sequel. Avenge, son of revenge. <laughs> uh, meditate. Some music, if you please. <laughs> it's done. I killed as any man would have killed. With my embroidery scissors. <laughs> It happened like this. We were riding along in a trailer. I was at the wheel. My wife was driving. <laughs> it was dark out, but I could tell where we were going by following the black line in the middle of the white highway. <laughs> it was a white highway for night driving. <laughs> Suddenly there was a sound of a flat tire. Why don't you watch your driving, stupid? <laughs> that was my flat tire speaking. <laughs> I pulled over to the side of the road and jacked her up. Put me down, you fool. <laughs> You'll have to go to town and get another car. What's the nearest town? Tulsa. I'll start now. Will you be all right here alone? Well, I hope so. Of course, if a burglar breaks in, it'll be quite a shock. He'll get over it. <laughs> well, I'm off to Tulsa. How are you going to get there? I'll walk. It's only 400 miles. <laughs> well, give me the sign. <laughs> well, leave 
my place. <laughs> what could possibly happen? I was only gone four weeks. <laughs> Nothing could happen to her. She can lick any man or wait. <laughs> what a built on that gal. Four short weeks. A fortnight. <laughs> wait a minute. I was only gone half that time. A tootnit. <laughs> when I got back, everything was quiet. I called to her. Mabel! Mabel! No answer. Of course not. That's not her name. <laughs> Geraldine! Selma! Jessica! Sam! <laughs> Just in case a man answers. <laughs> Then I remembered her name. It was Elsie. 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 <laughs> there she was lying on the floor. The tears streaming down her bruised and beaten face. Her lips blue and swollen. Her eyes red and glazed. Gap. She looks awful in the morning without makeup. <laughs> I spoke to her. Elsie, speak to me. Who done it? Tell me who done it. Speak to me, Elsie. She killed me. <laughs> Philip, she killed me. That ain't Elsie. That's the salesman. <laughs> she gave me such a smash. She just utterly killed me. Why? Why did she do it? I do not know. I simply do not know. I rang the bell, and she opened the door. And all I said was, I beg your pardon, is... Is your wife home, sir? <laughs> she killed me. She just utterly killed me. Would you recognize her if you saw her? I do not know. I simply... Do not know. <laughs> Listen, we're going to drive to Tulsa and Fana. We're going to drive down every street, every alley, every road in Tulsa. You'll see her. We'll find her if we have to go to every town in Oklahoma. Oklahoma? Oh, no. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Stay tuned for the adventures of Sherlock Holmes next on Theater of the Mind. Time now for the adventures of Sherlock Holmes and the episode Disappearing Scientists. Petri Wine brings you Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce in the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes. The Petri family... The family that took time to bring you good wine invites you to listen to Dr. Watson tell us another exciting adventure he shared with his old friend, that master detective, Sherlock Holmes. And now I'm sure our good friend and host, Dr. Watson, is waiting, so let's go in and join him. Good evening, Doctor. Good evening, Mr. Bartell. Here, quiet, Down, down, Monty. Down, down there. Don't seem very chipper tonight. Yes, tonight, yes, but they've been in disgrace most of the day, Mr. Bartell. Oh? What have they been up to? After the seals again, Doctor? Oh, no, my boy, this time it was chickens. 
They got into my neighbor's coop and had a delightful time. Fortunately, there were no casualties, but I'm afraid that my, uh, <laughs> my good neighbor policy has suffered a slight diplomatic strain. But you come here to listen to Sherlock Holmes' adventures, not those of my dog, so uh, draw up your usual chair and make yourself comfortable, and uh, I'll get on with tonight's story. Last week, Doctor, you told us it was a case in which Sherlock Holmes found the solution without ever meeting any of the suspects. That's quite correct, Mr. Bartell. As remarkable as an exhibition of long-distance detection as I ever recall. But uh, judge the story for yourself, my boy. It's in the autumn of 1903, and... Sherlock Holmes was about to retire to his bee farm on the Sussex Downs. I must confess, Mr. Bartell, that my heart was heavy during those last few weeks we spent at Baker Street. I thought of the countless adventures that we'd shared together. I remembered those many evenings of quiet comradeship and companionship. A fire blazing away in the hearth as Holmes lay back in the shadows playing his beloved violin. And then, Mr. Bartell, as so often happened, there'd be a violent jangle on our doorbell and some wretched soul in misery would be standing before us and pouring out his troubles. Suddenly the violin would be discarded, and Holmes the dreamer would become Holmes the man of action. Tom Watson, the game's afoot, he'd say. And in a few moments later, we'd be rattling off in a cab through the foggy, gaslit London streets. Yes, Doctor, I can imagine it was pretty hard for you to leave Baker Street. It was, Mr. Bartell. However, as it transpired, there was one more adventure awaiting us before we left. A few days before the actual move, I persuaded Holmes to take an afternoon off from his packing and accompany me on a visit to the laboratory of an old friend of mine, a Professor Jean Boulin. He was an eminent French scientist engaged in very important work at the London University. Well, by the way, this was at a period, Mr. Bartell, when radium was something extremely new and extremely rare. The university had just acquired a minute but invaluable portion of the element, and Professor Boulin was in charge of the research connected with it. I can remember the picture so well as Holmes stood in the laboratory talking with keen interest. Amazing, Quite amazing. Think that this tiny leaden vessel contains one of the most precious substances in the world. Yes, Mr. Holmes. We have a great deal to thank Madame Curie for. This new element may force us entirely to revise our concepts of all physical structure. Your research is a great responsibility, Boulin. It is, Watson. I must confess that I wish the authorities here would give me a freer hand. I foresee such infinite possibilities in the use, particularly the medical use of radium. But my conservative superiors seem to regard it only as a toy, a scientific curiosity. Limit your experiments accordingly, I suppose. Exactly. Given no opportunity to do anything that's in the least radical. Mm. It must be very disheartening. How can research ever get anywhere along those lines? It is a great misfortune, Holmes, that you've determined to retire to your bee farm. <laughs> uh, this project, we could use such an analytical mind as yours. <laughs> you flatter me, Professor. How many assistants do you have working with you, Buller? Three, but none of them are very inspired, I'm afraid. Mm. My best assistant is a man named Barker. He's a little on the conservative side, too. But he is extremely adroit. The other two, a young man called Taylor and the girl Gladys Hughes, they mean well. But gauche, I fear, is the only word to describe them. <laughs> why, why, why do you laugh, Bula? I was just amused to observe that in describing my assistance, I chanced to be literal as well as figurative. It's odd that random symbolism can sometimes... Uh, uh, but never mind that. 
You would like to see the rest of the laboratory? Yes, yes, indeed we yes, would. Thank you very I much. I have some extraordinarily interesting photographic plates that record the emanations of radium. They're over here. I think you will find them most fascinating. Baker Street, particularly when our rooms are full of packing cases, seems rather drab after the scientific stimulations of Professor Boulin's laboratory, doesn't it, old chap? Yes, it seems drab even if we hadn't been to see him. I feel frightfully depressed, Holmes. I just don't know what I'm going to do without you. Oh, you're still a young man, Watson, and a susceptible one. You'll marry again. No, no, I won't. (laughs) Yes, you will, old chap. And you'll end up by being glad that your old roommate, your difficult, rather unsociable old roommate is living in retirement on the Sussex Downs. Rubbish. I shan't feel anything of the kind. In any case, I don't think you'll be able to stay in retirement for long. Your mind is much too alert to be satisfied by being a sort of midwife to a bunch of beastly bees. Oh, dear Watson. I feel that you'll never eat honey again. Yes, you can laugh, Holmes, but I could see how excited you were when Bula suggested that you might help him with his radium experiment. Flattering suggestion, I must admit, my dear fellow. Just the same, I... Now, who the devil's that? From the urgency of the tug on the bell pull, I'd say that it was a client. Then go and head him off, will you, old chap? Yes, I'll, I'll do my best. Oh, uh, Watson, explain that I'm no longer in practice. It's too late, Holmes. He's brushed past Mrs. Hudson. Here he comes rushing up the stairs. Oh, confound it. I beg your pardon, sir. Are you but, Mr. Uh, Sherlock you Holmes? Uh, no, I am not Sherlock. Then you must be Mr. Holmes. That is my name, sir. But may I ask what accounts for your rather whirlwind entrance? My housekeeper, Mrs. Hudson... I haven't any time to consider oh. etiquette. My sister Gladys Hughes has vanished. Vanished mm-hmm. into thin air. You've got to find her for me, Mr. Holmes. I'll pay you any fee you name, but you've got to find her. Mr. Hughes, I'm extremely sorry that your sister has vanished, but I'm afraid that I can do nothing to help you. I'm retiring. I'm giving up my practice. If you won't help me, I'll go to someone who will. That's exactly what I mean, sir. I suggest that you go to the police, or if you insist on a private investigator, I can strongly recommend Mr. Martin Hewitt. Yes, his address is um, 39 Pont Street, Knightsbridge. Good day to you. Uh, good day, Mr. Hughes. 36 Pont Street, Knightsbridge. <clears throat> Yes, I can understand his concern, but his manners leave a great deal to be desired. Holmes, Holmes. Janice Hughes, his missing sister. That was the name of one of Professor Boulin's assistants, wasn't it? True, old fellow, but it's uh, probably only a coincidence. What? Both Christian and surnames are extremely common ones. Well, I... I have a feeling that it may not be a coincidence. Oh, come now, my dear fellow. Don't you try and embroil me in a fresh adventure. I've retired and I'm leaving for Sussex in a few days. And if any more clients come wrenching at my doorbell, I shall ignore them. But, Mr. Holmes, you've got to help me. My son, Jeffrey Barker, has disappeared. I'm sorry, Mrs. Barker, but I'm afraid I'm... Holmes, Jeffrey Barker was the name of Professor Boulin's chief assistant. Uh, Watson, please believe me when I say that I am not to be inveigled into any further... Uh, Mrs. Taylor, I'm sorry, but I can't help you. Oh, but Mr. Holmes, it's my husband. He's disappeared. We've only been married three months and now... Oh, it's terrible. I've been so worried ever since he started to work on that strange new radium with Professor Jean Bellin. Holmes, you can't pretend it's coincidence any longer. Gladys Hughes, Jeffrey Barker, and now Taylor. The free assistance of Professor Buller. Oh, I know it, Watson. Mrs. Taylor, the moving van will be here tomorrow to take, to take my things to Sussex. I shall follow them immediately. I have retired, madam. Do you understand that? Retired. Yes, another telegram for you, Holmes. It'll be the fourth today. Why won't Scotland Yard leave me alone? Well, it's a pretty strange business. Three people engaged in research of this... 
new element radium have all disappeared within 48 hours. Scotland Yard needs your help. Let them earn their salaries, my dear Watson. I've helped them for the last time. Well, let's see how they've couched their latest diffusion. Oh, this isn't from Scotland Yard. It's from my brother, Mycroft. Mycroft? What's he going to say? Listen to this. Now Professor Boulin has disappeared. Great Scott. And the radium with him. Surely the pattern is obvious, Sherlock. Radium must be found. Could solve the problem for you, but I'm too lazy. Consider what a flashy case for you to retire on regards Mycroft. Ah, <laughs> the old devil. Holmes, this is shocking. My old friend Boulin has, has disappeared. Yes, Watson, and now my brother asks me to investigate. Hmm. The pressure becomes irresistible. Very well. I bow to fate and postpone my retirement for a few hours. Good man, Holmes. You know you'll you'll never really retire. Now, let me see. As Mycroft says, there's an obvious pattern in this case. Our first step, of course, will be to interview all the doctors who treat patients without charge. Why? Well, surely that's obvious. Well, it isn't at all obvious to me. I... Don't know why you always leave me in the dark. <laughs> well, what makes you laugh? <laughs> Been left in the dark. It's just like the old times, isn't it, Holmes? <laughs> Come on, old fellow, let's go. The game's afoot. Uh, Doctor MacDonald, this is Mister Sherlock Holmes. Mister Sherlock Holmes. Eh? I'm very glad to meet you. And are you, uh, Dr. MacDonald? I swear that I've never been in as many doctor's offices as I have today. But Mr. Holmes is in search of some information. Perhaps, Doctor, you, you can help him. I'll do my best. Uh, what do you want to know, Mr. Holmes? Uh, whether you have any charity patients with skin eruptions or growths of any kind. I mean, oh. patients that have not kept their appointments recently, perhaps. Now, let me see. Why, why yes, I do. Old Mrs. Pendle. She has a very bad case of lupus. She was due for a treatment here yesterday, and I've seen nothing of her. Splendid. Can you give me her address? Why, certainly. It's in my book here. Well, I hope this isn't a false trail, Holmes. You can only explore it and see, dear chap. Ah, here we are. Mrs. Pendle. 36 Elm Gardens, Clapham. Mrs. Pendle, 36 Elm Gardens, Clapham. Thank you, Doctor. I'm greatly obliged to you. Getting restless, Watson? Yes, I am a little. We've been waiting outside Mrs. Pendle's house for over an hour. Why don't we knock on the door and see if she's at home? Oh, no, 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 my dear chap. We mustn't frighten her. I hope that she's going to lead us to our quarry. You see... Shh, shh, shh. Front door's opening. A woman's coming out. This is Mrs. Pendle, beyond doubt. Look at that bandage around the upper part of her face. Yeah. Hello, she's turning down the street. We're going to follow her, I suppose. Naturally, but let's give us a let's give her a start, shall we? We don't want her to spot us. Well, while we're waiting, perhaps you'll clear up one or two points for me. I'm still very much in the dark. With pleasure, old chap. What puzzles you? Well, one of the things that Come I... On. Do... What? We've given her enough of a start. Let's follow her. Oh, very well, very well. But look here, Holmes. You asked me what I didn't understand. Two things puzzle me. What did Mycroft mean by the pattern of the case? Why are we following a poor sick old lady through the London streets? I'll ask, answer the first question, and I think the answer to the second will be self-apparent. The pattern of the case is clear. Professor Boulin and his three assistants have vanished, together with the radium, but their disappearances were not simultaneous. Had they been so, it would have been a transparent case of theft. But with the disappearances gradual rather than simultaneous, the emphasis has been subtly shifted. Yes, I can see that, Holmes, but what do you suppose is at the back of the whole business? Can't be a simple case of theft. Radium is enormously valuable. 
But it'd be hard stuff to sell again. Not to an unscrupulous criminal with a knowledge of medicine, Watson. My own theory, and I admit at the moment that it's purely a theory, is that Professor Boulin was worried because he was so hampered in his research. You remember that he stressed his great faith in the medical values of the new element, radium. Yes, 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 he did. It's more than possible that he places the rights of science above the rights of property, that he's determined that he and his group will carry on their invaluable research unhampered by the conservative restraints of the university. I see what you mean, Holmes, but how does Mrs. Pendle, the poor woman that we're following, enter the picture? Because one of the chief lines of radium research on the continent so far has been with her sort of trouble. Professor Boulin's obvious move, if my theory is correct, would be to contact poverty-stricken patients... Promise them relief, induce them to abandon their regular treatments, and submit to him. By Joe, yes, Holmes, that seems perfectly logical, and yet I can't believe that Boulin would... Mrs. Uh... Pendleton has uh, reached her destination. She's turned down a driveway. Yes, she's walking up to what looks like a, a deserted well. Howdy, old chap. Don't let her out of our sight. She's opened the door without knocking. She's gone in. We'll wait here for a moment or two, then we'll follow her. I have a feeling that your old friend, Professor Poulain, is not far away, Watson. Yes, you're probably right. I hope we can do something to protect him from the consequences of what he's done. It might easily mean the finish of a brilliant career. I'll do everything in my power, but you know as well as I do... Shh, shh, look, 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 look. Mrs. Pendle's coming out again. Yes, and she's in trouble. Come on. Mrs. Pendle, what's wrong? I don't know how you know my name or who you be, but you ask me what's wrong... They tell me to come here to this address, and I find a doctor who'd help my face. I comes here, and what do I find? What did you find, madam? A corpse, sir. That's what I find. A dead man lying there in a great pool of his own blood. Well, Dr. Watson, so... Following the tracks of old Mrs. Pendle led you to a corpse, huh? Yes, Mr. Bartell. Of course, Sherlock Holmes and I went at once into the broken-down warehouse to examine the scene of the tragedy. Slumped over a desk in a dark and shabby room, a flickering candle giving a macabre lighting to the scene, was the body of a man. I think I knew its identity even before Holmes turned to me. That's a bull All right, Watson. Good devil. Murdered, of course. Yes, but examine him for yourself, will you? Yes. Yes, there's no doubt about it. This wound couldn't have been self-inflicted. The right oracle of the heart has, has been pierced. How long ago would you estimate death took place? Well, uh, not more than a couple of hours ago, I should say. Uh, not hard to reconstruct the killing. The murderer came up from behind Boulin as he sat here, crooked an arm around his throat... Yes. See the finger marks on the right-hand side of the neck? Here? Then stabbed him in the chest. And then withdrew the weapon and disappeared. Leaving no traces, confound it. A dusty room is an ideal place for recording footprints, but uh, there are half a dozen different prints here, including Mrs. Pendle's. Hello. Here's the print of a smaller woman's shoe. Well, it must be that of Gladys Hughes, his assistant. Undoubtedly. But that really proves nothing except that she was here with him. The fact that we were convinced of anyway. Mm. Question is... Come on. Let's go outside and talk to Mrs. Pendle again. Poor old Boulin. What a shocking way to die. And what a great loss to science. I suppose the murderer must have stolen the radium. We found no trace of it in there. Undoubtedly, the possession of the radium was the motive for the murder. Uh, Mrs. Pendle. The poor man is dead, ain't he, sir? I'm afraid so, madam. I knew it. 
I never should have come here. I never should have left Dr. MacDonald. Mrs. Pendle, let me ask you a question. I can't be answering no questions, sir. I don't know nothing about how the poor soul got himself murdered. What would a poor woman like me know about no, such no, things? No, 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 my good woman. My friend isn't suggesting at all that you know anything about the murder. Then what do you want to know, sir? Who told you to come to this address today, Mrs. Pendle? A young lady. Nice young lady she was, too. She met me coming out of Dr. MacDonald's yesterday and told me that if I come here today, I'd find a doctor who could cure me. Yeah, that was obviously Miss Hughes. Holmes, I believe that your theory was right. Come on, Mrs. Pendle. We'll escort you to the nearest police station where you can report the murder. Yes, sir. And then, Watson, we must keep on the track of the radium. That, perhaps, is more important than any life. Well, how are we going to do that? We haven't a clue to go on. Remember that Professor Boulin's three assistants are still missing. We must go to the homes of each of them and see what can be found out. Mr. Hughes, you must realize by now that your sister's disappearance is part of something vastly more significant than you think. I must ask you in the... But my first... sister didn't disappear, Mr. What do you mean, sir? You came to us and said that she had. Oh, it was all a mistake, gentlemen. She came back today. She'd just been down to the seaside for a short rest, and she'd forgotten to let me know. I'm sorry to have bothered you. May I see your sister at once, please? I'm sorry, Mr. Holmes, but she's out just now. I don't know where she's gone or what time she'll be back. Mrs. Barker, I've come to you about your son's disappearance. I'm afraid that... Oh, but the... my son didn't disappear, Mr. Holmes. It was all a misunderstanding. He came home today. Then may we speak to him, please, Mrs. Barker? Oh, I'm afraid that's impossible. You see, he just... Mrs. Taylor, I want to talk to you about your husband's disappearance. Oh, that. He came home this afternoon, Mr. Holmes. At first I was so suspicious, but, but when he explained, well... <laughs> Well, I'm sure you know how it is in the first few months of marriage. Those, those little tears. Confounded, Watson. We are no nearer the solution. And meanwhile, here we are back in Baker Street to find that the moving van has taken all your things off to Sussex. Perhaps you should give up the case, Holmes, and follow them. Close my career on a note of failure. No, 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 my dear fellow. I shall not leave London until this problem is solved. In that case, I'll I'll sit down. (coughs) Looks to me as if it may prove a lengthy wait. I've rarely felt more frustrated, Watson. All three vanished technicians home safely with plausible stories, or at least plausible alibis, and poor Bula murdered, the radium stolen. I must say it makes no sense to me. It must make sense. The pattern was well enough to find in the beginning. It's just a question of... Finding the right key. In a way, it's clear enough what's happened. One of the three assistants, placing the financial value of radium above its value to science, murdered Boulin to obtain the prize. The other two, fearing that their complicity in the original plot would involve them as accomplices in murder, ran home and established an alibi. And the murderer did the same thing, for it's obvious one of the three must be the killer and the thief. Yes, the question is... Which one of the three is the culprit? If only poor Boulin were alive, he could help us. My dear chap, if Boulin were alive, there would be no murderer. Well, of course it wouldn't. Now, let's see, let's see, let's see. Boulin gave us a few bare facts about his three assistants. I, I wonder... But, of course, Watson, I have the answer. The case is solved. What do you mean, Holmes? How can it be solved? You haven't done enough investigation. If it comes to that, you haven't even seen any of your three suspects. That isn't necessary. Oh, you know who did it? Yes, Watson, and so should you. We know nothing to set them apart from each other, except that one of them's a girl. We know more than that, my dear fellow. Think hard. Well, 
Boulin told us that Geoffrey Barker was an excellent technician, while the other two were somewhat uh, we know, clumsy. We know even more than that. Well, just if I know what, Holmes. I shan't even need to stay in London and follow the case through to its logical conclusion. A telegraph uh, to uh, Mycroft and another to uh, Scotland Yard to take care of it, yes. And I can be in Sussex before the moving van, after all. Oh, you mean you're going now before the case is solved? But it is solved, my dear fellow. All that remains to be done is some purely routine work. Uh, what's the time? Uh, look, it's... Uh... Uh, uh, Splendid. If we hurry, we can catch the 345 Express from Waterloo. We? Yes, I um, I was counting on you spending a few days down there with me, old chap. I, I hope you can spare the time. I should hate to make so drastic a change without uh, my good old friend Watson at my side. Oh, of course. I'm, I'm delighted, but... Uh, but but uh, what, my dear boy? The case of the disappearing scientists. Wait until we get to Sussex, shall we? Hmm? As soon as I get an answer to my telegrams, I'll explain the whole thing to you. And now let's hurry, shall we? Our train leaves in 40 minutes. More tea, Watson? Thanks, old boy. Ah, peaceful down here, isn't it? Extremely. At the moment, I must confess, <clears throat> I find it rather nerve-wracking. Oh, why? Well, you know why, Holmes. I want you to open that telegram and tell me if your solution to the... The Boulin case was the correct one. Very well, my dear chap. Let's see. Uh-huh. It's from Mycroft. Listen. Murderer arrested and radium recovered. Well done, Sherlock, though you took longer than I expected. Regards, Mycroft. Congratulations, Holmes. <laughs> and now perhaps you'll con- condescend to, to tell me how you solved it. Don't be angry with me, old chap. I only oh. wanted to make sure that my solution uh, was correct. You remember the uh, the nature of the fatal wound on Boulin's body? Of course. Been stabbed through the right oracle of the heart. From behind. Proving that the murderer was clearly right-handed. Oh, what does that signify? Almost everybody's right-handed. Oh, no, not in this case. If you recall, Professor Boulin said that uh, Geoffrey Barker was adroit, while his other two assistants were gauche. Then he laughed because he said his fuck was true, both literally and figuratively. I still don't see what I'm talking about. Oh, come now, Watson, come. Uh, Think of the origin of the word adroit. Adroit. Droit is the French word for right. And gauche is, is the word for left. Meaning the two gauche assistants were left-handed, and therefore only the adroit, the right-handed Barker, could have inflicted the fatal wound. I see it now, Holmes. <laughs> you know, if you'd remembered that mark of Boulin's at the time we found his body, you could have solved the case much sooner. That's true, old fellow, very true. <laughs> and when my old friend Watson points out that my memory is failing and my mind sluggish, then I know that my retirement has been postponed for far too long. Well, so, so Holmes really went through with his idea of becoming a bee yes, farmer. Yes, of course, of course. It became one of his favorite hobbies. Do you know anything about the, the raising of bees? Oh, nothing at all. The only connection I've ever had with bees was very remote. Once I had the hives. Once you had the... Oh, no, oh, no, no, Mr. Barker. <laughs> oh, yes, Dr. Watson. But seriously, I do know one thing about bees. Even when you know all about them, you're apt to get stung. That's true enough. So I'll make my hobby Petri wine. You know, you can't miss when you buy Petri wine, because Petri wine is always good wine. The Petri family has been making fine wine for generations. In fact, they started way back in the 1800s. 
And they've handed on down from father to son, from father to son, the knowledge and experience absolutely essential to the making of truly fine wine. And since the making of Petri wine is a family affair, you can be sure that the name Petri means something on a bottle of wine. Those letters P-E-T-R-I are more than a trademark. They're the personal assurance of the Petri family that every drop of Petri wine is good wine. So when you buy wine of any type, you can put your faith in the Petri label because Petri took time to bring you good wine. Well, Dr. Watson, what new Sherlock Holmes story are you going to tell us next well, week? Well, I'll never see. Next week, Mr. Bartell, I'm going to tell you about one of the weirdest adventures that Holmes and I ever had. It concerns a haunted chapel in the wilds of Cornwall, strange organ music that played at midnight, and the headless ghost of a murdered monk. Tonight's Sherlock Holmes adventure was written by Dennis Green and Anthony Boucher and was suggested by an incident in Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's story, The Rygate Puzzle. Music is by Dean Fossler. Mr. Rathbone appears through the courtesy of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and Mr. Bruce through the courtesy of Universal Pictures, where they are now starring in the Sherlock Holmes series. The Petri Wine Company of San Francisco, California, invites you to tune in again next week, same time, same station. Sherlock Holmes comes to you from our Hollywood studios. This is Harry Bartell saying goodnight for the Petri family. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, it's Fred Allen, followed by Suspense. Thanks to Joel Schoenwell and Paul Stringer for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.